and welcome to In Season, where we explore the farms, gardens, and wild places of the North Coast. I'm Jessica Schleif, and today with me, I am, I am joined by Karen Temple, a teacher, poet, gardener, emerita, <laughs> um, local woman that has influenced me so much with her, her poetry. I remember the calendar of writers with Jim Dot, a show she used to do on here on KMUN um, with, uh, with Carol Newman on Carol Newman's show. Um, Karin and I have recently been having some, some interesting conversations about uh, the human condition and gardening and the times that we find ourselves in. Um, welcome, Karin. Well, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining me up here at Shively Park. We are, we are turning one of the beautiful historic shelters up here on this little piece of nature that we can enjoy. We're turning this into a recording studio today. Kiyomian has been so creative during this whole thing. And I loved it when Marianne Meyer said the other day, it's my audio teddy bear. And that's exactly <laughs> it at home. I mean, without Kiyomian, I'd be lost. So thank you all. Oh, yeah. Oh. And, and I'm, I'm really honored that you asked me to be part of this show because I am an emerita gardener. Um, which means retired in a way. <laughs> That's an academic term for people who don't teach anymore but still are in some way active. I only have uh, a balcony garden right now where I grow a lot of herbs and a few flowers. And it's a northern balcony, so I do what I can. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was very active for 25 years with a farm out in Svensson, and so I have to rely on that reputation <laughs> for things that that I can tell you about and yeah. speak about. Today. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had wanted to bring you on the show for for a while now to read some poems that had kind of inspired me that are garden related, but I I would love to go ahead and, and chat and kind of go back a little bit and talk about your growing up years and, and, and we'll put some poems in here at the appropriate times. Um, Karin, tell me about growing up in Germany and, and your gardening experiences as a young person. Well, I didn't really have them per se in a, in a manual way. I was born in 41. And um, that was, of course, the war, World War II, for those <laughs> who are not quite so fluent with all these wars. And I was too small. I got to help, however, in the kitchen because gardening, of course, leads to food preparation, mm -hmm. and, uh, which is still something I do do a lot. So I got to shell a lot of peas and fava beans and that sort of thing. So that was your introduction into right, the green world. Right, that was my introduction. And, uh, but the gardening aspect of those years was also a survival aspect. Yeah. I mean, if people didn't garden, they would have starved and, uh, or nearly starved. Yeah. And, and uh, that's something where you and I have made contact before that um, gardening in hard times 
is universal and a need for food, but also for the soul. Yes. Because it means we're hoping, putting hope in something that will grow up and that we can eat and also that will give us beauty and that will give us the awareness of the rhythm of the seasons, which is, I think, you know, a, a beautiful part of our lives, that that doesn't go by unnoticed. Yes, and that, that, that um, the gardening is a way to connect to that. with that. Yeah. Well, for a long time here in Astoria, I was subjected to two calendars, my gardening one with my farm and then the academic one at the college. Right. And I don't know why it wasn't well advised particularly, but I gave both of them up pretty much at the same time and had to find uh, some sort of new scheduling in my life. Mm -hmm. And I sort of did with the church year right. as I turned to that. Yeah. 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 And, and, and what are some of the things that you do with the church? I know that there's some flower-related things. Yeah, I, I order the flowers, the altar flowers, but uh, I have uh, two services there, which are, of course, not taking place that I introduced. And one, one ministry is the labyrinth, which you have been to. And uh, the other one is the Taizé service. And mm -hmm. those are the things I'm particularly responsible for and proud of and pleased to, to bring to the community. And then I have some other roles as Eucharistic minister and, yeah. and what have you. Yeah. yeah, and during these COVID times. Yeah. Yeah. I we mean, have a very pared down service, but because of my age and my vulnerability, I, I don't do much. I'm hardly there at all. Yeah, yeah. So you're finding solace in, in different ways. Yeah, books. Books. <laughs> the forest. <laughs> the forest. And Other people's gardens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so is hiking something that you, mm -hmm. is that part of yeah, your? Fortunately, I have enough strength again that I can do that. And, that is absolutely wonderful. And that you chose this setting is just such a treat. Absolutely yeah. perfect. Although you did one show in my former garden, right? Yes, yeah. I did. I did. She, Jessica <laughs> bought my house after all. <laughs> and my garden. <laughs> yeah. The, um, so, so that practice, that getting out in nature practice is something that has um, been part of your world. But during these COVID times, yeah, Probably and, even more important. Of course it is. And, yeah. and um, it seems the parallel comes up right now that people are gardening more during this pandemic. Yes. I am sure for a number of reasons. One of them is a little bit of a scare about possible food shortages. Uh, also having lots of time on their hands. Yeah. And, and uh, I think... There seems to be something that draws us toward gardens in times of crisis. And if I look back on the history that I am aware of, and of course we don't go back to hunter-gatherers, so that was a different era altogether. But starting with the Garden of Eden, uh -huh. which uh, you know, is there whether you are part of a Christian denomination or not, but everybody knows about the Garden of Eden and it is a formative myth for all of us that, that there it was and that was called paradise, that was a garden. Mm -hmm. 
But then uh, whenever in really hard times, people turn to it uh, as a way of survival and of joy as well, yes. but also of toil, uh, as we all know. So there were gardens even recommended in other seasons, in other eras, like victory gardens. That's, even that's, in this country, they yeah. had victory gardens, and, and people were encouraged to have them on public lands, and in England, too. Absolutely. So in England, yeah. I, I, I spent some time in England, and, and there they called them allotments. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a long list, you know, a, a waiting list that you had to wait on to get one of these allotments. And, and I thought a lot about uh, the Victory Garden movement. Um, you know, there's that food security aspect to it yeah. of, of yeah. knowing, okay, I've got some, I've got some Swedes out there. I've got some rutabagas in the ground. I've got some potatoes in the ground. I have some yeah. greens coming in. But then there's also that um, that process, the actual process of doing the gardening, of having our hands in the earth. Yeah, and and in Germany they were called Schrebergärten, and of course these allotment gardens, which would be like a community garden now in right. a way. It, it was meant for people who were living in apartments. Because mm -hmm. even now, most Germans live in apartments. They don't have their own houses with, with you know, some sort of yard that they can cultivate. So they had to find uh, the earth someplace else. So more of an urban setting, like, like cities would be yeah, here. Yeah, you know, yeah. we are in this beautiful rural place where we are blessed with space. And there are more space. urban gardens popping up here now. I, I read a big article some time ago about Detroit, which was so hard hit with all kinds of awful unemployment and, and what have you, and what, how urban gardens have sprouted up there in neighborhoods. New York, urban gardens there, too, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, this Schrebergarten movement, and it gives you time to be outside, and it gives you exercise. Mm -hmm. If you are a gardener, you know, you have to kneel and bend and lift and all of those things uh, that are good for you. And in the case of, of England and Germany, you had to get there, which probably meant some exercise, either walking or bicycling. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so th those are all good components. They are, and I, I know at certain points for me, I, uh, through a creative process, I had reached out to you for a book that you had called Defiant Gardens. And that book was so inspirational to me that, that I had had this idea about the Victory Gardens and that it was a certain sort of thing for food security. And, and yes, we're, we're talking about the other aspects of that. But then the idea that sometimes, like in internment camps or, or, mm -hmm. or times where we are not able to, um, that, that people were reaching into that gardening world almost as an act of revolution. And it, such a contrast to what they could have done, which is to just sit in a corner and weep. Yes. Which, of course, is also understandable. But that people in the trenches of World War I planted gardens. They were, so, they were there for a long time sometimes. Uh, the, 
go to a more recent thing, the internees, uh, the Japanese internees yes. in those desert settings, what they created, a lot of them happened to be gardeners and landscapers that were interned there, and they had the skill, although not all of them. It was miraculous what they were able to come up with. And, uh, and so, yeah, there are lots of examples in this wonderful book that we now call our book. We pass yes. it back and forth between <laughs> us. Uh, ghetto gardens, uh, prisoner of war gardens. My father came back. My father was uh, in Stalingrad and didn't come. That was the battle in Russia in 1942. He came back. He was a rare survivor in 48, And he brought two watercolors back with him, which one of them is reproduced in the Chalice of Tears books, of their camp garden that those Stalingrad survivors in their prison camp created. And it's beautiful, really. Yeah, that that and, and and there seem to be flowers too, maybe even more than vegetables. And that for me in the Defiant Gardens book, um in the Japanese internment camps here, that people were not just growing food, that they were creating small landscapes of beauty mm -hmm. yeah. and the and kind of thing meeting. you do. Yeah. Uh, th yeah. That, I, I can get emotional just talking about <laughs> it. And yeah. the first time you lent me that book, seeing mm -hmm. that, seeing the way that we can keep our sanity almost at times yeah. through the act of interacting with nature. And not every garden has to be a, garden, a piece of beauty, uh, although usually in some way it is. There's a re recent article in The New Yorker um, which talks about a good enough garden. I love that, yeah. that concept that if it pleases you and fulfills your needs, then it's good enough. It doesn't have to be a showpiece of gardening. <laughs> yes, yeah, and I think as I, um, as I go through my journey with uh, making gardens and, and caring for gardens, I, I just realize that that messiness can be so good for the wildlife and that this idea of having things neat as a pin and, and edges and no weeds and... <laughs> I was probably too uptight about it originally. You know, I'm German and I'm a Virgo, <laughs> it's sort of a curse. But, but I, the 25 years at the farm there in Swenson taught me to get a lot more relaxed yeah. about things like that. Yeah. Although I do also see a similarity between gardening and writing poetry because, you know, it's in rows. <laughs> right. There is a, a beautiful order. And maybe not all the rows are equal length. My poetry is not that formative, but but uh, I, I think, think they this, go together. I think this is a beautiful lead-in for a poem. Okay. Or, <laughs> I will start with one out of my first book, the Child of War book that was published in 2000. And um, it's about a vegetable that most people who lived through World War II are not so fond of remembering, but I am. It's called Ode to Rutabagers. On certain winter days, you can find me in my garden bent over short and stocky, in a padded old coat, digging the gold of rutabagas. Black runes tell of hard times past, 
of cold globes bouncing in a rucksack, my mother running with her lute, which rolled onto the kitchen table, greeted by cheers and ready hands to cube and cook in bacon rind stock with bay leaf and onion. Triple satisfaction of rich, earthy smell, sun-captured warm glow, and sweet comfort taste. For that belly-filling meal, I will always grow one row of rutabagas, banking my trust in my reliable roots for good times and bad. Mm, beautiful. I must say, I did grow a lot of those German vegetables when I first started here, particularly, because they thrive here. It's right. a similar climate, although it gets colder in Germany. So rutabagas was one. Uh, I grew kale and fava beans, which was then not a popular vegetable. People were looking at my garden saying, what are those? <laughs> and of course, now they're very in. So I was ahead of that. Uh, to say the truth about this poem is that this particular rucksack full of rutabagas my mother had stolen from a field. Oh, wow. Because sometimes the need was so big that we didn't have enough. So and some she gleaning. Would, we call would, that gleaning, She Karen. would go out <laughs> at night and she stole... Foraging. She, she stole rutabagas. She stole coal from freight trains and, you know, put her life on, online for doing these things and or her you know, other kinds of safety. She was a beautiful young woman then. So anyway. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. I, I almost feel like going into the, into another, do you mind going into another the next? Yeah. yeah. Do you mind? Sure. Another aspect of that gardening is a poem called Genuflect. And I remember Anne Splain Phillips saying, oh. when, when that first came out, she said, oh yeah, gardening is religion. <laughs> Wasn't quite what I had in mind, but in a way it is, of course. And genuflect, of course, means kneeling, and it is worshipful kneeling, usually, like in church. Anne, what Anne uh, has, has Past, but Anne Splain Phillips was a, another uh, poet from this community that wrote a lot about vegetables, didn't she? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she had beautiful garden too. She did. Yeah. yeah. She did. Yeah. Genuflect. Green gives the signal to get on my knees in the garden. A supplicant. Weeding, sowing, weeding, thinning, weeding, harvesting. I have knelt here 24 seasons, row after row, east to west, north to south, and have annually and perennially been granted more miracles than a pilgrim in Lourdes or Santiago de Compostela. irony here is that at that point I hadn't made the pilgrimage. Really? Yeah. This was obviously written shortly before I left the farm because I had already 24 years. I saw that. Yeah. 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 
And uh, I knew about pilgrimages, Lord and uh, is one in the Pyrenees Mountains. And uh, I started my pilgrimages to Santiago de Compostela in the Pyrenees Mountains. I picked, partially picked that, other than the idea that there were miracles, because the word compost is in <laughs> Santiago de Compostela. And I thought that was a great name and uh, association for yes. the poem. And nobody exactly knows where actually the name came from, but probably it came from Spanish, compost for a field. So there is the compost in it connection somehow. Such a nice rhythm in that, the way you read it, the, the weeding, the sowing, the we I thought, oh, this is like doing the this, work this of farming. Yes. Yeah. 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 How many, so how many, 25 years you were at the farm? I had the farm for 25 and, and, years. And you yeah. were saying that you were growing some crops that uh, people hadn't really seen before, like kale, and, and I know you have talked in the past about things that were important to you, like meat that was raised humanely in yeah, an organic and I did that way. Too. The animal husbandry was very much part of it. I mean, I read a lot of, from the nearings who were sort of pace-setting in those days of people who wanted to get back to the land. They were gardening in Vermont, I don't remember that, but they had no animals. And, and I wanted animals always uh, because, well, for companionship, and I wanted to eat them. And, and they and provide compost. manure. Yes. Absolutely. You know. <laughs> Completing the circle. Yeah, yeah. Completing the and circle. The, the big compost pile and then the manure piles. You know, I had pigs, goats, chickens, ducks, and uh, there was lots of good manure. The one thing that was very different in the garden here in the United States is um, that it wasn't permanent. All the gardens in Germany had permanent paths and and uh, beds, mm -hmm. whereas here, I just had this huge garden and I went through with a rototiller and could reinvent what Each I wanted season. to grow, how the big the, the beds were and where the paths were and what have you. I kept a memory of what was where because of the need for rotation, of course, that was a different aspect. But my farm, which I named Tempelhof, because I did have it as a business for tax reasons, among other things, uh, it was in the Bear Creek Valley out in Svensson, a beautiful, beautiful soil, just so lovely. Yeah, you could grow anything there. And uh, my, my then husband wasn't always so happy with all those German things I was growing, red currants and gooseberries, you know, sour fruit. <laughs> sure, sure. And, uh, and I made a big, successful five-gallon crock of sauerkraut with my first cabbage harvest with the help of my aunt from Germany giving me advice via letters and, and recipes and what have you. And then he told me he wouldn't eat it. <laughs> I'm sure there were plenty of other people that were happy to eat your sauerkraut. <laughs> well, not that many, but I did my best. <laughs> and now all of us can't get enough I know, of fermenting. fermentation. So you were very ahead of your time, Karen. And here. I didn't know then that you could actually also freeze it. I was just used to having this big crock that you had to take care of like a living thing. Mm -hmm. You had to skim it and wash the rock and the cloth and, you know, on and on, which was part of 
of what I loved doing and what I loved learning. The process. The, the whole process. thing was a learning process. I mean, I wasn't, I, I, I had a childhood where people gardened and where all that food was prepared and put up. But then we moved to a bigger city. I went to high school. I had a university education. And I came to the United States for a teaching career, not to be a countercultural <laughs> farmer out there in Swenson. But it appealed to me because of what was going on in the world. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of unrest in the late 60s. And in Germany, my, my friends, they were restless more in political and intellectual ways. They couldn't have 20 acres of land where they could realize a sort of a different vision of the world that wasn't controlled by corporations in the food and the agribusiness mm. world. And uh, so, you know, this was a real wonderful hands-on opportunity, but I didn't know that much about it. Okay. No. I read books, yeah. and, and I had some advice from Germany, from my Tata, and then I spoke to people around here and, and learned what it is. And turns out I was good at it. And animal husbandry, too, was so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and being able to, to slow things down and, yeah. and maybe not feel the pressure of, I need to go and work all the time and make money <laughs> to get the brand new car. I did have a half-time job at the college. Yeah. 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 But, but yeah, no, the new car was, you know, what, what I always termed as my lifestyle was genteel poverty. Yes. And I'm still doing that, sort I like of. that. <laughs> I like that. Would you like to share another poem? And, and yeah. this was really, oh, we've got two minutes, so maybe this poem is going to take us out. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Thank you, Karin, for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Sustenance. Gardens were a given during the hard times. Vegetables, dill and parsley, a few rows of asters and sweet peas along the fence grew in every backyard. Bicyclists balancing a rake or a spade on their way to an outlying Schrebergarten were a common sight. Fridays, when the fishmonger's cart loaded with place came through, Eager gardeners watched, pale in hand, and hurried to collect steaming horse apples for their tomato plants. Gardens were also forgiving. Nobody but my mother chided me for picking a handful of berries, a ripe pear, or a flower out of a neighbor's yard. Overabundant produce would find its way to our doorstep green beans, peas, cucumbers in summer, frosted kale or Brussels sprouts in winter. Gardens not only helped us survive, but secretly connected us to other distressed parts of the world by a web of underground roots like far-reaching mushroom mycelia. Victory gardens in England and America, ghetto gardens in Poland, prisoner of war gardens even in Russia, pictured in two watercolors my father brought back 
Japanese internees landscaped the barren desert camps of California, raked paths and rocks defining race beds, ponds, the occasional tree. All these war and post-war gardens had one thing in common. They transformed the most basic human need for growing food into an act of defiance, a symbol of hope, a manifesto of beauty, a prayer for peace. Thank you for joining us for In Season today. And thank you, Karin Temple. And let's go out and find our humanness in nature, people. Thank you. Thank you.